Great. Thank you, Scott. Greetings and welcome, everyone, once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Chuck Kylo, and I will be your moderator for today's call. We're delighted you could join us. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, or what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that we can all use to improve our clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being on Wednesday, March 17th. The article for that call will be Heterogeneity is Not Always Noise, Lessons from Improvement by Dr. Frank Davidoff. Please join us. Several organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage you to do so as well. And by the way, Dr. Davidoff's uh, article appeared in the December 16th, 2009 issue of JAMA. Today, our featured author is a good friend uh, and a geriatrician, Dr. David Rubin, first author, actually only author, on the review article, uh, which is titled Medical Care for the Final Years of Life. When you're 83, it's not going to be 20 years. And this article occurred uh, appeared in the December 23rd uh, issue of JAMA. Dr. Rubin, who we're delighted to have, is the director of the multi-campus program in geriatric medicine and gerontology and the chief of the Division of Geriatrics at UCLA Center for Health Sciences. He's also the director of the UCLA Claude D. Pepper Older Americans Independent Center. And Dr. Rubin, uh, his bio is extensive. He is uh, extremely well published and has won a lot of uh, awards for his teaching skills as well. So, Dr. Rubin, welcome. Thank you very much, and good afternoon or good morning to you wherever you are. Um, as my uh, job uh, as a moderator, it's helped us focus the discussion on the application of Dr. Rubin's uh, article with the goal of driving performance improvement based on this article. Now, you've seen the article, or you wouldn't be on this call. It's uh, quite a long article and quite detailed. There's just a, uh, a lot of information in it, and Dr. Rubin does a great job of talking about the system implications of some of the critical issues around geriatrics care, and we will be digging into that uh, during this hour. Uh, so the purpose is for you to hear directly from the author, in this case, Dr. Rubin, about the article, and he will overview the article here in just a, a few minutes. Dr. Rubin will spend about 10 minutes with his summary, uh, and then we will uh, move back and open it up to your uh, questions and comments. Your participation is very important in these calls. You can certainly ask questions to get clarification on anything in the article itself, uh, but we also are interested in your experience, uh, particularly around systems and putting in place systems uh, for the care of geriatric patients. We have approximately 100 phone lines called in right now with several individuals generally participating per call. Some individuals of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. And one other note before we get started, this call is being recorded and will be made available on both the IHI and JAMA websites as both streaming audios uh, or podcasts, and details can be found under the program section of IHA.org. Prior author in the room calls are available on those sites as well. So let's get started. Let me once again welcome Dr. Rubin, who will provide an overview of his article. Dr. Rubin. Thank you very much. So here uh, in this uh, article, we start out with a case. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time uh, with the case, but let me just suffice it to say that we have an 83-year-old man who uh, has had uh, some falls and uh, his, uh, with soft tissue injuries, but by and large, he's getting better, and, and the uh, healthcare team that's been caring for him has really done everything right. They've, they've just done a terrific job with him. Uh, he also lives uh, at home alone with his uh, wife, who has Alzheimer's disease for four years. So where we're going with this uh, paper and where we're going with um, the idea uh, uh, of, of what we're going to talk about is, is where do we go from here? Uh, you've got this guy who uh, is 83 years old, and he's not in the very last phase of his life. He's somebody who's got a fairly uh, li long life expectancy, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, but we're preparing for the future. So in terms of the healthcare system, what are our roles or what is the physician's role? And that's to kind of uh, think about where he's going. 
what kind of trajectory he might have for the remainder of his life, to clarify his goals, uh, what uh, determine what's important to him, and then put together a plan with the patient to help achieve those goals as much as possible. We always like to use evidence-based medicine uh, to uh, come up with any kind of plan, and that's the title of this series. But in, in fact, a conventional evidence-based medicine approach needs to be modified by three important caveats. The first of these is prognosis. So uh, knowing what this individual patient's prognosis is exceptionally important because sometimes treatments that will work very well in patients of similar age may not be appropriate for him because of his comorbidities, might uh, reduce his life expectancy, and he might not get benefit from them within the expected survival period. The second modification to evidence-based medicine is when you run out of evidence. And this is commonly a problem in patients who are in their mid-80s or 90s or, or even older, is that uh, the evidence base just isn't there. Uh, the, uh, there are very few studies that are available looking at conditions uh, that occur in 85-year-old people. Uh, one, of the, one example of uh, where there is evidence is uh, through a HIVET study that looked at 85-year-olds with hypertension. But uh, when you're looking at a 90-year-old who has rheumatoid arthritis, uh, you're just not going to find any of those patients included in clinical trials. The third uh, major caveat uh, to modify uh, evidence-based approach is really the patient's goals and uh, preferences. Uh, here's where uh, we ask the question to the patient is what is important to you? Uh, this may relate to uh, functional or health state. Uh, they may want to be able to walk independently. They may, that may not be very important to them. Having their symptoms controlled, uh, being pain-free and not being short of breath are frequently important, but they, they need to be uh, con uh, stated by the patient and agreed upon. Uh, being able to remain in someone's home, uh, that's a very, typically a very important thing to uh, many patients, but not everyone. And then uh, survival. Sometimes people want to live long enough to reach a milestone. Uh, a family member's wedding, a bar mitzvah, a Christmas, uh, whatever it might be, to live that long. Uh, sometimes these goals uh, may differ. The patient may have one idea of what's important, and the doctor says, you know, that's just not, not achievable. Uh, sometimes it's the other way around. The, the doc thinks that the patient can do better, and the patient's just not willing to put up uh, with the work to do it. They may uh, not do physical therapy because it's too hard, even though that might restore their mobility. And then finally, uh, with respect to patient preference, sometimes the patients may want uh, treatment that just uh, isn't good uh, medical care. Uh, they might want something that is... Um, is uh, is extraordinary uh, staying on a, on a ventilator for several years, um, uh, having uh, uh, futile interventions uh, or treatments, and uh, this is another co uh, source of attention between the, the doc and the patient, but needs to be considered. So uh, where do you go with with a patient like this? The first step is really uh, a step assessing prognosis. With respect to prognosis, there are many uh, tools that are available. In the paper, I just show uh, one that's very uh, simple and is pretty much in common domain. That's uh, a simple life table uh, analysis. And uh, for this 83-year-old man, uh, he could be expected for to live to, uh, six to seven years, uh, essentially, uh, so that you're dealing with somebody who's not, whose death is certainly not imminent and could be quite longer. Uh, for example, he has a 25% chance of, of living nine years, so it, it may be uh, considerably longer. But it gives us some kind of time frame, both for the patient and myself, to know how long we're dealing with and what kind of issues we need to be discussing. Within that prognosis, uh, there are, th are basically three kinds of trajectories his, his health could take, and they're, they're in the figure, but the first uh, is what we like to call uh, or like to think of as pretty close to a healthy aging or natural aging, where there's a gradual decline in function and a gradual decline in health, and that eventually, uh, in, in the best case scenario, you go to sleep one night and don't wake up. Uh, it doesn't happen all that often, but that, that's, that's one extreme of a trajectory. Uh, a second trajectory is, is a... Uh, 
trajectory that has people declining at a much more rapid rate, such as you would see with a chronic disease, such as Alzheimer's disease or maybe Parkinson's disease or ALS, where you, where you see people uh, declining uh, much more rapidly and frequently spending a fair amount of time uh, functionally dependent in, in all activities of daily living, but uh, still surviving. And then the third uh, basic trajectory is, is that catastrophic tra uh, trajectory where somebody is doing very well and then they have either a hip fracture or a stroke uh, or a, a disastrous myocardial infarction with very, very poor ejection fraction. And these people's lives have changed and they never really returned to their previous level of function. So with these kinds of trajectories in mind, just returning a bit to the case, uh, is uh, thinking about objectives in short terms, uh, uh, mid-range, and longer term. And the short term is generally uh, the first year uh, uh, or looking out one year ahead. And in general, uh, looking in that one year, unless there's something uh, bad, really bad going on, um, the idea is, is let's ha what, what can we do to, to get you better? And in, that, in this case, uh, this man who expected to live another seven years and by and large is, is pretty healthy, uh, the, that's our first job is, is let's do what we can to get you better. Uh, the second phase is uh, that kind of mid-range phase from uh, one to five years. And here, uh, there's a lot of the, the, the kind of uh, expectations and the priorities re really shift. Uh, here, you have to think about a, a longer range picture, um, what kind of preventive steps that you might want to take for somebody who's going to live at least five years. Uh, here, you can start uh, spacing out the intervals of visits. A lot of times, I'll ask my patients, when do you want to see me next? Uh, and rather than seeing them very frequently to monitor them as you would in that short uh, range, uh, time range period, uh, these might be every three to six months. Uh, the other question I always ask kind of in the mid-range, uh, particularly in this case, is what's going on at home? And in this case, um, uh, the patient's wife who has Alzheimer's disease is almost certain to decline uh, over the period of the next five years. So this is something that the physician needs to keep in mind, needs to uh, ask about. Uh, obviously, there's a line between being the patient's doctor and, and being the patient's wife's doctor. And, and sometimes you are both, and sometimes you aren't. Um, then the, the, uh, the third big phase is that longer-term phase. And that's the period of time uh, more than five years. So. Uh, the vast majority of, of older people go through this, uh, this final period of life where you are going to see uh, a, a period of decline, of physical decline, of frailty, uh, unless, unless they have a catastrophic end or something else happens. But by and large, there will be this final period um, that, uh, that, that there are going to be some very tough decisions to be made. And there, the, uh, the kinds of decisions is where the person will live, uh, what kind of resources does he have to provide support if he needs it, and uh, safety concerns. One of the biggest issues in my practice is, is balancing the, the uh, patient's uh, safety versus the patient's autonomy. Uh, there are decisions that I, the physicians always tend to side on the uh, uh, go out on the side of, uh, of safety, but frequently the patients are willing to take the risk uh, of safety uh, to maintain their autonomy. And th these are, are very difficult situations, but uh, that's part of the, uh, the care for these longer-term issues. Uh, finally, it's, it's exceptionally important as, uh, for these longer-term issues, and, and even, even in the short run, is to think about the kind of care that somebody would want uh, at the uh, very end of their lives. Uh, in many respects, it's, you can never address the issue of advanced planning, advanced care planning too early. Um, and uh, even if somebody's not ready to make a decision about whether they would like to be resuscitated or have uh, artificial feeding, they frequently will be able to make a decision about who should speak for them uh, if they're unable to speak for themselves. 
So the, the very last uh, thing I, I want to say in the summary is to talk a little bit about uh, providing uh, this kind of care that this patient needs in, in, uh, in practice settings. One of the things that uh, geriatrics has been guilty of, and uh, I, I'll, I'll stand guilty as charged, is that we, we, um, we aren't strategic enough in how to approach these issues. Many of them take a, a, a lot of time, and um, if, we, if we are more strategic about delegating some of the tasks, particularly data collection, some of the counseling tasks, some of the implementation tasks, uh, we have a lot more time to spend addressing the patient's concerns. Uh, to do so, we really need to organize our systems of care much better. Uh, this can be done uh, in practices that are small as one or two or three uh, by sharing some of the uh, responsibilities of data collection and, and plan implementation. Or, in fact, in larger healthcare systems, there are uh, patient education programs and uh, things that you can do uh, in terms of delegating to uh, special specialty clinics or specialty care coordination programs. Uh, but uh, there's some things that there's something for everyone in terms of being more efficient and more streamlined in providing this care. So at this point, I think I've gone through my. Uh, my 10 minutes, but I would like to open it up to uh, questions. And, and from my perspective, uh, is nothing is off limits. So I'm going to turn it back to you, Chuck. Great. Uh, thank you, David. Appreciate that. And uh, again, this article is just packed with really great information. I could read it over and over, and I have, and I continue to learn things every time I look through it. David and I had a, an hour preparation call, uh, and boy, there are plenty of things to talk about. So we do want to turn the call over to you now uh, for your questions and comments for Dr. Rubin. Um, and I will ask Scott to give us instructions for you as to how to get in the queue. Scott? Yes. At this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone telephone. You may withdraw your question at any time by pressing the pound key. Once again, to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone phone. We will pause momentarily to allow questions to queue. If I could uh, start, actually, I got one by email. That'd be great. Uh, so this uh, was an email question that I received uh, from from uh, somebody who read the paper, who was uh, asking about uh, the uh, various settings where people die. And uh, according to uh, Michigan death data, 41% die in hospitals, 27% die in nursing homes, and 29% uh, die at home. And uh, the person notes a trend uh, that fewer are dying in hospitals and more are dying at home and in nursing homes. Uh, so, so this is really a, a, a very interesting question. And uh, my response to it is the, the, the best place, if, if death is imminent, to have the dying process uh, depends upon what uh, the patient and family can do and want. Uh, I've had patients who uh, I have had in the hospital and was going to discharge home uh, to, to, uh, for the dying process, and it would have been the worst thing I could have done for them. Uh, they did not want to die at home. Their families did not want them to die at home. They were very panicky about it, and having them stay in the hospital and having the dying process at home or occasionally in, in a nursing facility uh, was, in many respects, the best gift I, I could give them. Um, on the other hand, many other people uh, do not like the hospital environment. It's too sterile. It's too regimented. Uh, they want to be home with their, their belongings and their dog and, and whatever. And uh, so it, it really it depends upon what's right for that individual situation. I don't think um, there's any inherent value-laden benefit of one site versus another. Great. Uh, good comment. Scott? Our first question comes from the side of Danielle Kopp with Faxton St. Luke's Healthcare. Please go ahead. Hi, just a question about how you arrive at your vitamin D recommendation for patients. And then just another uh, comment about uh, the nutritional assessment of the elderly and an evidence-based approach to that. And are you aware of any, um, any, any information that can... Uh, uh, help with encouraging uh, older patients uh, to uh, have a little bit of a better nutrition profile? Yeah. So this is a really good question. Um, uh, I, in fact, I knew that it was going to come up, and I'm glad it came up early. 
so the vitamin D recommendation is, is probably the most controversial uh, aspect, uh, uh, not controversial, but most in flux aspect of, of the paper. Um, initially, when I wrote it, I actually talked about uh, measuring vitamin D levels and then kind of went back and forth. And eventually, uh, it was to give 800 milligram uh, international units uh, of vitamin D per day. Um, because that's pretty much the standard recommendation right now without monitoring levels. That said, uh, it's highly likely that this is going to change very shortly. The Institute of Medicine has been preparing a report uh, w that will update the recommendations, and, and all the rumors are that it's going to be uh, higher than, than the uh, current amount. Now the question really becomes uh, for whom and when to measure uh, vitamin D levels. Uh, uh, parenthetically, I have measured it in a number of, of my patients, uh, and uh, sometimes I'm tremendously surprised that uh, among those who are the most robust and healthy and out in the sun a bit, uh, they've got uh, woefully deficient vitamin D levels. So uh, for the vitamin D recommendation, I think 800 milligrams uh, uh, today, February um, uh, 17th uh, is probably where we are, but this, this is likely to change very quickly. Uh, in terms of nutrition uh, assessment of the elderly, uh, this has been a very difficult topic because um, it, what happens is that it, it tends not to be one construct, uh, that a lot of the nutritional measures that are out there measure not only, assess not only nutrition but functional status as if they were, uh, they were interchangeable. And, and it turns out that, that they're not. Um, that um, purely measuring nutritional status, I haven't found any uh, measures that I, I think are, are ready for prime time in, in practice other than asking people about their weights and, and monitoring their weights. Um, the other ones are, are just um, uh, haven't been robust or uh, clinically useful enough uh, from, from my perspective. Thank you. Wonderful question. I appreciate that. Uh, and Scott? Once again, to ask a question, please press the star on one on your touchtone phone. Our next question comes from the side of Larry Lawhorn with Wright State University. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you. Uh, we're interested in uh, your views on uh, some current models of, uh, of care, the uh, ACOV that uh, you all have been involved in, as well as uh, uh, Eric Coleman's model, uh, Chad Bolt. Uh, how do you think these will play out uh, in our care uh, for older adults? Right. So uh, we're, we're in a very exciting time right now in terms of models of care uh, for older people. There are uh, a number of different models, uh, some of which are, are referenced in the article, and I'll also refer you to a paper that Chad Bolt authored in uh, the Journal of the American Geriatric Society in December of this year that is a, a much, uh, much more robust um, analysis of these, and it pretty much mentions everything, uh, brings people up to date with these. Uh, but these are very exciting programs. They're very exciting because they uh, generally improve the quality of care, they generally improve the patient experience, they generally, um, some of them actually have shown some uh, better health outcomes associated with it. Uh, the, the big issue for most of these at this point, although not all of them, is that uh, they tend to be prohibited um, or precluded by the uh, financing of health care. So this is an area, and many of these models are just absolutely ripe for the patient-centered medical home, which would actually provide the, um, the uh, personnel resources to implement. So for example, the, uh, the model that uh, Chad Bolt uh, has developed uh, on guided care really uh, depends upon a uh, registered nurse to be this care coordinator. Similarly, some of the models that, uh, one of the, the greats model that uh, the Steve Council developed uh, requires um, social work input. Uh, so uh, these models are, are just prime and ready to roll, uh, but the widespread implementation is going to require a bit of, uh, uh, of um, reconfiguring of the payment structure. Now those who are in capitated care or managed care programs, um, they're ready to roll right now. Good question. Any other any other uh, questions about those particular models or thoughts about about them from your perspective? 
I can't remember the uh, the questioner's name. Larry, it was Larry Lehorn. There you go, Larry. No, I, I appreciate your comments. Uh, you know, we're looking at those in the Dayton area, Dayton, Ohio area, trying to figure out uh, what's going to happen with health care reform and how uh, that may or may not uh, affect their decision making. Sure. Yeah, and certainly in our area in Portland. Um, Lots of conversations, as David uh, alluded to, in terms of the patient-centered medical home, or call it whatever you'd like to, and the concordant uh, funding changes that need to go along with that. And unfortunately, in our area, perhaps like yours as well, there's, it's a lot more conversation. There is real action thus far. So, um, so we're we're in a we're in a wait and see mode, and uh, lots of good pilots being developed, uh, and hopefully we'll get there to the point where we can actually fund some of this appropriate care and uh, do some of some of the more advanced work that David is suggesting we do do. Great. Well, appreciate that, Larry. Uh, Scott? At this time, it appears oh, we do have one more question. It comes from Sherry Wheeler. Please go ahead. Hi there. Um, actually, it's Mary Wheeler, and that's fine. And Mary, where are you from? We are with the Washington Home and Community Hospices. So we're a unique um, program that has a 180-bed long-term care facility and a um, hospice program that has home care, um, an inpatient unit, and then patients in our long-term care facilities under hospice care. So we have a, a unique continuum. And I know that your article talked more about the, the home patient and, and private practice coming in and out. As I read it, there's certainly many things that are applicable in our setting, but I'm just wondering if you could talk to maybe the patient that is a long-term care resident and any experience or any thoughts about applying um, some of the things you talk about in your article to our program. Yeah, uh, obviously the focus on this was somebody who is uh, community dwelling, but in fact uh, m many of the principles uh, uh, are, are shared. So when you think about somebody who's already in long-term care, um, you are, are really um, kind of shifting things one frame forward because the vast majority of people who uh, are in long-term care do not have uh, life expectancies of five years or longer. For the most part, they're going to be uh, they're going to be shorter term. Obviously, there's some exceptions of young people who develop dementia, but, but for the vast majority of them, they're going to be sh uh, shorter. So you're really looking at uh, kind of mid-range and short-range um, goals and, uh, and priorities. So um, here, uh, if you're going to do evidence-based disease management, you're going to need to have returns on that uh, within the uh, person's expected uh, lifetime. So obviously, if somebody's not going to live more than five years and you're going to see a five-year reduction in mortality if you treat lipids, uh, it, it's really not worth it. You're just not getting anything out of it. Uh, similarly, with some of the preventive services, um, uh, some of those may no longer be uh, valuable because the person won't live enough and enjoy the benefits of them. Uh, the, the other thing that's really important in, in these settings uh, is really addressing uh, patients' wishes uh, because here you, you get into a situation where um, a lot of things that, that people never wanted or don't want get done. And uh, you, you can't you, you can't over um, over clarify. Uh, the, be the more clarity you have about what somebody's preferences are, and, and these can certainly change. Uh, we've had patients um, the first two or three times they they go to the hospital after being having pneumonia. Uh, you know they're still they're still uh, a game for doing everything they can be, but after the second or third one, they realize that this is a revolving door, and uh, they 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 change their priorities. So with each kind of uh, exacerbation or or hospitalization, these kind of goals need to be readdressed. And uh, particularly uh, in, in patients who have uh, decided to uh, limit the amount of care that they will have, uh, this has to be documented and communicated clearly. And here's an area where the post forms are, are so very valuable. Uh, there, there's actually almost nothing worse in, in healthcare than to have a patient uh, arrive in an emergency room 
uh, and the emergency room physicians not know anything about the patient and uh, intubate the patient when the patient specifically requested they, they didn't want something like this. So here, having those kind of discussions and having the patient's wishes clear and transparent uh, to anybody who could uh, who could uh, have uh, be responsible for care of the patient uh, is, is tremendously important. Mary, anything else on that? Oh, thank you very much. Good question. Um, uh, David, one of the um, things that you and I talked about was, uh, you know, given the average uh, primary care practice takes care of the majority, I think, geriatrics in the country, uh, given your, your depth of knowledge, obviously, what would you recommend as some of the first key steps if they're going to begin moving towards improvement in their geriatrics care? What kinds of things should we be thinking about? Well, I, I always like to think about being comprehensive but, but being efficient. So I, I think the, the very first thing is that uh, a lot of the common geriatric conditions uh, are, are not getting effective care because uh, healthcare systems and physicians don't know about them. Uh, for example, we've been doing a, a lot of screening in uh, physicians' offices uh, for conditions like incontinence and, and fault. and, and uh, about half of people over 75 years of age have these conditions when asked. So uh, if you don't ask, you, you won't know, uh, and you won't be able to uh, prevent a fall if you don't know somebody's falling, and sometimes patients won't tell you. So I think that one thing that, that's pretty easy to do and uh, doesn't cost really much is to develop uh, methods of, of, uh, case, uh, of identification or screening and the way I recommend doing that is through pre-visit questionnaires. Uh, there, there are a number of examples of these. In fact, we have uh, one on the Internet. It's referenced in the article. But um, here, it's essentially patients are doing homework uh, before they actually see the physician, so it doesn't take the physician's time other than to respond to it. Uh, and uh, it, it really just uh, sets things into motion. Uh, it turns out many, many times it's not so much the provider's lack of knowledge. Uh, it, it's that the the provider either doesn't um, know what the condition is or doesn't have time to to do take care of it. And there there are many ways to get around the not having time. Uh, one one strategy that a lot of practices will do are uh, planned visits. So if you've identified somebody is falling or having urinary incontinence or having cognitive impairment and you've got uh, 10 other issues to, uh, to manage on that day, including the hypertension and the heart failure and the diabetes, you say, all right, I'm going to see you today for those, but I want you to come back in two weeks' time and we're going to spend the entire visit uh, on falls or on um, evaluating your memory or, or working on your incontinence. Uh, so not everything has to be addressed on every visit, and doing a little bit of strategic planning about uh, how to manage these issues, uh, even if you have to take them one at a time, uh, can be very, very helpful. Our next question comes from the side of Susan Ward with the Bay Area Health Trust. Please go ahead. Thanks, Scott. Hi, it's uh, Susan Ward calling. Um, I'm interested, very interested in um, the patient center um, medical care model and in home care, and we're looking at uh, studies with regards to home care and patient safety. Can you comment a little bit about what your thoughts are around um, how patient safety will be affected by um, this kind, these kinds of models? Okay, so uh, the, uh, um, this is a very interesting question in that uh, most of the time uh, folks uh, who are thinking about patient-centered medical home have really thought about it in an office setting, you know, thinking of the office as, as being the, uh, the hub of the wheel, uh, essentially. But in fact, uh, for a patient-centered medical home to work, it has to work in, in pretty much all settings, uh, including home care and, and safety. So one way uh, in terms of uh, home care uh, and safety, one of the decision nodes is, in fact, whether the person is, is homebound and uh, frequently, if somebody is homebound, uh, most uh, there's a Medicare benefit for a um, uh, safety evaluation um, can uh, frequently be ordered 
to be conducted either by a, a physical therapist or, or a nurse who does a home environmental inspection. Where, where we get into more trouble, however, is uh, uh, our patients who uh, aren't homebound and they still have uh, safety concerns. And uh, those, um, those there aren't really good models for right now. And here's, here's a plug for the guided care model and other patient-centered medical home models, uh, including GRACE's as well, where uh, a member of the healthcare team actually goes out into the home. Frequently, it's not the physician, but it's a member of the healthcare team and does a, a pretty close uh, home safety evaluation. David, are you there? Is that, is that pretty good? Is yeah, that, no, that's fine. Thank you very much. Get at your Thanks. question? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, I thought we lost you for a second. <laughs> uh, Susan, anything else on that topic? Uh, probably not. Uh, Scott, anything else in the queue? Our next question comes from Shira Epstein with IHI. Please go ahead. Great. Hi, Dr. Rubin. Um, this is Shira Epstein, and, and like Scott said, I am a researcher working with IHI now on their um, initiative on reducing avoidable rehospitalizations. Um, and I'm looking specifically at the issue of end-of-life care that you uh, discussed in your article. There are a lot of initiatives going on in Massachusetts to improve end-of-life care, either by better honoring patient preferences or reducing the unwanted hospitalizations that was mentioned earlier. Um, and, and the challenges, the biggest challenges that they're facing is getting physicians to change practice, to be able to use the evidence that you spoke about and wrote about, and to um, honor preferences of, and patient goals, both through system level and behavioral changes, and to be able to work with uh, providers across the continuum. Um, so what would you say that you as a physician or maybe some other physicians who are less sort of educated about this issue, what do you need to make this a standard of care to make it easy to provide evidence-based preference-honored end-of-life care? Well, uh, yeah, when you're, when you're talking about uh, end-of-life care, when you, 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 the patient and you agree upon, upon end-of-life care, uh, there, the most obvious mechanism is hospice, uh, which is a uh, defined Medicare benefit and um, works pretty well generally. Uh, now, the, the, the trick with, with hospice, there, there are several tricks with hospice. One is that they meet, have to meet hospice criteria, and hospice criteria currently are an expected uh, life expectancy of six months or less, and there are uh, ways in which this is operationalized. Um, the, sec the second uh, aspect about the trick about hospice right now is um, the hospice benefit is administered very, um, very differently, very differently by different hospice organizations. And even within uh, an individual hospice, a number of patients that I've had who've been referred to, who've been cared by the same hospice, uh, have gotten very different care. And sometimes it depends upon the hospice nurse who's in charge of the case. So, um, you, in, in some respects, you've seen if you've seen one hospice, you may have seen one hospice. So, getting to know uh, your hospice and and who um, and who's following that patient, and as a physician, not being afraid to uh, to complain to the hospice if you, your patient isn't getting the kind of care that that uh, you think uh, the person should be receiving. Uh, it, within the hospice benefit, physicians have their choice of of following the patient themselves uh, or uh, allowing the uh, hospice physician to be the, the physician of record and, and, and to follow the patient. Um, and that's really a, 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 an individual choice uh, of, the, of the physician, the primary care physician, based on uh, the relationship to the patient and what kind of coverage they have and, and things like that. Uh, but I, I always like to follow my patients through hospice. It, for me, it, it's very gratifying uh, to, to see them through the final chapter of their lives. Now, the, the question that, that, that you also you raise uh, further is, what about people who aren't eligible for hospice? You know, they're further out. Uh, they're not going to die in six months, but they are going to they're likely to die within a year or two. And and what can what can be done for those folks? And here, uh, it's it's more difficult. It's definitely more difficult because we don't have good systems in place. Uh, some of the managed care organizations, the large managed care organizations, 
uh, or setting up programs for advanced illness, but in, in the fee-for-service structure uh, and in most commercial structures, uh, those, those aren't available. Uh, and here um, you have to really um, you have to be more resourceful. And once again, this is an area where uh, a patient-centered medical home for care coordination, for uh, the necessary home visits when you need to get out there uh, can be exceptionally valuable. But um, I, I know a number of the palliative care groups are really trying to work to refine the Medicare benefit to be more inclusive and to broaden it to recognize that uh, end-of-life care is ju not just um, six months, but it is, it is the terminal phase. Does that, that sort of get at what you were uh, looking for? Yes, great. it was great. Thank you. It seems to me, um, uh, in that regard, David, there's there certainly are uh, quite a bit of systems issues, and then there's just that personal issue that we we all as clinicians address those things so differently. Uh, and part of it is based based on our practice patterns and how how aggressive we are uh, at trying to understand the person's end of life desires uh, and abide by them without medicalizing the end of their life, which we do tremendously well at a tremendous cost. Uh, and both monetary cost and I think a personal cost to those that we serve. Well, yeah, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the component that I think you're addressing here is is how comfortable the physician feels uh, with end-of-life care. And not all physicians do feel comfortable with it. Um, one of the, the interesting tensions that we see a lot of times is on, in oncology. Uh, and we see this both among oncologists and among oncology patients where oncologists are sort of uh, feel that uh, the reason why patients are coming to them is because is they, they want something to try to prolong life. They want to uh, uh, seek a cure. They want to keep on, and that's, that's what their role is. And they are less comfortable sometimes with, with saying, you know, it, it's time to make that shift to a, a more palliative type. Um, we also have seen this with patients, too, uh, who are seeing in, in oncology who um, are concerned when, when they're going to see an oncologist, and the oncologist says, have you thought about palliative care or hospice? Uh, some patients have, have, have expressed concern that the doc is giving up on them. So here, here is a very fine uh, line of tension, uh, in particular of, of when, you're, when you're ready to make that turn, from trying to do everything you can for the patient to help them get better to, to uh, shifting to a, uh, a palliative approach and, um, and an end-of-life approach. And it, it's difficult. It's difficult for physicians. Some physicians just don't feel comfortable with it. And in those cases, it, it really should be handed off. It should be handed off either to the primary care physician or to uh, the hospice physician who 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 um, who has more skill and, and comfort in doing this? Well, it's probably hard to get at it from a research perspective. It's it just seems to me that an enormous percentage of what happens is determined by the the primary care physician patient interaction, which is so based on their relationship and the primary care physician's approach to how they how they manage these situations. And I don't know if there if there's much research on that, but intuitively that makes that certainly makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that was a great question. Um, uh, Scott? Our next question comes from Ho Holly Keeler with the VA of Cincinnati. Please go ahead. Hi. This is actually Marlene Burns, and we work in a, a veterans um, facility, short-term care and nursing home. And my question is asking for guidance or an opinion on patient autonomy versus patient safety. Um, many times we have weekly interdisciplinary care meetings and almost every week we have a veteran who is wanting to leave the facility and go home to independent living and is um, very well documented that that is not a safe option for them. That is and a great we question. struggle yep. with this all the time. Sure, wonderful, wonderful and tough challenge. David? And you're expecting me to answer this question. <laughs> so, or, or maybe give us some guidance. Well, yeah. I, tell us who can. So um, <laughs> this, is part of, this is part of my daily life. Sure. I have, uh, at any time, I have a half a dozen patients who I lose sleep over at night because they made a decision that I don't necessarily agree with. 
Uh, I have a number of it, it, typically it's people who probably need assisted living and won't let anybody in the house and sometimes they're just stubborn and sometimes they have some psychiatric diagnosis that they just don't don't want um, don't want people in there uh, but um, where you really and if they're psychiatrically impaired enough to not be competent then that's easy but but frequently they're not frequently they're competent to make their decisions they they can they can verbalize what the consequences might be and they say I, I don't care uh, so so these are these are really uh, difficult decisions um, and if the patient is competent there's really uh, nothing that you can do uh, that that really yanks them out. Uh, one of the things you can do before that, in kind of in your assessment, and if you're if you're worried about the patient, is you can always refer to Adult Protective Services, and this is something that uh, I think we as as physicians and as healthcare providers don't do enough. Uh, on the other hand, um, speaking out of the other side of my mouth, is that when I've done so on, in cases like this, they they typically are less than helpful. Uh, what they wind up doing is telling me that the patient is competent to make the decision. It's not a good decision, but uh, in, in fact, um, it, it is a competent decision. But sometimes actually having a teleprotective services come out uh, is enough to scare the patient. And sometimes that, that helps a little bit. But the other thing you have to do sometimes is just give them, um, give them some rope and hope that the kind of injury or the kind of problem that they're going to develop is one that, that, that's a warning sign of something bigger to come, uh, such as a fall at home that, where they, they get a bruise or they, uh, um, they, um, they uh, seek medical attention but haven't broken anything and use that as a, as a, a way of trying to convince them that, uh, in fact, what, what's currently going on is, is not working. But um, as a geriatrician and as a primary care doc, these are some of the most difficult cases that I get. And I, I really try to mount everything. I, I mount the family, uh, you know, anything I can do to try to, to, try to convince them. But, but sometimes uh, you just can't. Uh, I wish I had the magic bullet here, but, but I don't. But hopefully that, that uh, kind of gets at the question you're asking. I think it was a great and very practical uh, response to a, a terribly challenging uh, issue. Marlene? Yes, thank you so much yep. for sharing. Good. Excellent. I appreciate that, David. Is uh, That balance between uh, patient desire and what we, we, we sometimes know to be best for them is a, is a real difficult one, and it certainly comes up in geriatrics a lot. Uh, Scott? Our next question comes from the side of Chris Langston with the John A. Hartford Foundation. Please go ahead. Hi. Uh, great uh, talk, David. Uh, thank you. Um, so I had a question that came up in a meeting yesterday, um, and that has to do with how physicians can support family caregivers who are not themselves their uh, patients. So in the example that you used to organize your, your paper, Mr. Z is a family caregiver and the patient, but what if uh, Mrs. Z was your patient? Um, what are the kinds of things you could do to educate and uh, support and keep Mr. Z healthy as part of the support system for your patient, Mrs. Z? So this is actually, if it had been flipped around, uh, that Mrs. Z was my patient but Mr. Z was not, is that what you're getting at? Uh, that's right. But they're not both my patients. No, I mean, that'd be too convenient. Oh, that'd be too convenient. Yeah, yeah. all right. I, I'm with you. Yeah, so, um, and, and this is a situation where, where um, it's pretty common, where you're caring for uh, a demented patient, and then, um, and, and then what you really want to do is not only provide care for, for that patient, but also to try to uh, empower and uh, better prepare the spouse or the caregiver or the daughter or the son uh, to be able to provide that care. And, and much of that is really within the realm of caring for the patient. Uh, so uh, the first thing that I do, because uh, they do it better than I do, is I, I tend to re, uh, refer to some of the community-based organizations, uh, particularly uh, the Alzheimer's Association or the Family Caregiver Alliances or there are also, uh, a number of local resources to try to help uh, educate these uh, family caregivers. Um, the second is I, I do a lot of um, uh, empowering of them and, and praise of them. 
when they come to the office with a patient. I always encourage as much as possible for these caregivers to come to the office visit with the patient. In uh, and, and my situation, it almost always happens. And here, I'll obviously talk to the patient, examine the patient, but I also spend some time with the caregiver about things, trying to find out what's working and what's not working, what additional resources they need, and and provide uh, referrals uh, when, when I can. But uh, and, and some monitoring of them in terms of, of caregiver burden. Um, sometimes you can predict pretty well who's going to to really have trouble in the next three or six months. Their lives are falling apart. They're breaking into tears in the office, those kind of things. And, and those are warning signs for, for, for trouble uh, immediately ahead. And, and there you have to uh, intervene e either through yourself or, or hopefully with a social worker or another um, uh, resource to try to uh, interrupt the cycle. Uh, you know, a sort of reminder, I think, David, for us that this is just a great opportunity for, for team development. There's certainly a lot that needs to be done here, should be done for caregivers for which the physician is not the appropriate person to do all that legwork, uh, and uh, be it a social worker or whatnot or other resources that can help to do all that work obviously would be more cost effective than us. And I know we do spend, we tend to spend a lot of time trying to navigate those choppy waters when others are probably more competent to do so and more cost effect, can more cost effectively do so than we do. Yeah, let me just comment on that because sometimes you're in a situation where you know it, it's just a crisis situation, and you can tell that that things are are a mess. Uh, the caregiver can't can't uh, cope anymore. Uh, the patient's having behavioral symptoms or or whatever, and uh, the smartest thing to do is just bring the patient in the hospital uh, because frequently you aren't able to uh, manage assemble these teams or or get it done quickly enough. And the good news about most hospitals is they have a social worker. They will be able to uh, try to get uh, the the course corrected as quickly as possible. And uh, although you know my my, my keep down utilization costs uh, hat says don't do it. Sometimes it's the most efficient and the best thing for for the patient to uh, try to interrupt this this terrible cycle. Well, uh, David, I'd like to thank you. We are at the top of the hour. I'm kind of surprised. I just looked down at my watch and realized it's just at the top of the hour. The hour went quickly. I think uh, we could easily have a several-hour conversation about this topic. It is uh, so broad and deep. And, uh, David, you're certainly uh, one of the best people to talk with us about it, and we really appreciate your uh, participation. Well, it's been my pleasure. I, I thank you very much. And if anybody has questions, feel free to get in touch with me uh, or, or through JAMA. And, uh, uh, take good care of those older patients. Absolutely. Uh, and thank you all for participating today. As a reminder, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion will take place on Wednesday, March 17th, at, uh, and our featured guest will be Dr. Frank Davidoff, prior editor of the Annals of Internal Medicine. Uh, and his article appeared in the December 16th, 2009 issue of JAMA, Heterogeneity is Not Always Noise, Lessons from Improvement. So please feel free to join us for that. Sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, author in the room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical care. Thanks to each of you for being a part of today's author in the room. Good day.